Hello and welcome to episode five of Why This, a Nexus Arts podcast. I'm Aaron Chupan. I'm the media manager here at Nexus Arts, an intercultural arts organization in Adelaide, South Australia. In Why This, I talk to artists from all sorts of backgrounds at varying levels of their careers about why they do it, why they started, what keeps them going, and what they hope for the future. In my role here at Nexus, I get to speak with artists from all backgrounds of all disciplines, and I wanted to extend those conversations and share them with you, the audience. Today, I sat down in the artist studios out at Carclew House in North Adelaide and spoke with Jamila Main, a theatre maker, consultant, writer, actor, you name it, they seem to do it. I had a great conversation with Jamila about making theatre, their writing process, and the importance of inclusivity and representation, which is a theme that many of the guests on the podcast bring up. We also have a short yet passionate rant about the James Bond films. So without further ado, I hope you enjoy my conversation with Jamila Main. Welcome. Uh, we are in the artist studio at the back of Carclu House right now um, with Jamila Main. Would you like to introduce yourself to the people at home and tell us what you do? Yeah. Hello. Uh, I'm Jamila Main. Uh, my pronouns are they, them. I identify as non-binary and I'm queer. I'm an ambulatory wheelchair user. Most importantly, I am an artist. I mostly work as an actor and a playwright, but I also work as a disability and access inclusion consultant and dramaturg and just like freelance and picking up odd bits and gigs in between and making art as much as I can. Beautiful. Whatever pays the rent in between, right? Definitely. Yeah. That's a lot of things. Um, yeah. <laughs> My calendar is very full. <laughs> well, that's, that's awesome. It's it's, it's good to, to, to do many things, but also, yeah, be, be booked for them all. Let's sort of uh, rewind a bit. Mm. Um, so you do a lot of things now. Yeah. Just maybe rewind to, a, you know, we're all a child who's mm-hmm. like in the world and at some point we figure out a certain path or yeah. interest and stuff. Can we sort of go back there to, you know, what, I mean, what came first? I was always telling stories as a child. All my games were involving characters and dolls and toys um and drama and whether that was acting it out myself and playing it or uh making a book out of folded a4 sheets of paper drawing the story across the book and then dictating to my mum because I couldn't write yet (laughs) uh what words she had to put on the page and being very specific if she would try to like paraphrase to get it done quicker (laughs) I was like no I'm actually picking these words because of this word is important um so it's just like something I've always done and then in high school you know was like the drama nerd um always writing shows and putting them on at lunchtime and asking people to come (laughs) um but kind of Left high school not knowing that acting schools were a thing. Sure. Um, and I realised very late in high school that there were actors in Adelaide. I thought that was something that happened in London and New York and Sydney. Right, yeah, yeah. Um, we didn't go to the theatre as a family um, and I grew up in Hallett Cove. So there wasn't a lot of like local art that I was exposed to. I just did not know it was an option for me, but knew I loved to do this. Uh, And I went to Flinders Uni to, like, appease the parents and, you know, do a real degree. Sure. 
uh, but I made sure I got into the high achieving arts degree, which was like 14 of us were selected and we had to maintain very high grades. So even though I was studying like drama theory and I did a practical acting class as well, and then had a double major with international relations. That sounds legit. That's going to keep mum and dad happy. Yeah. (laughs) Which is full of business nerds um, who didn't want to speak in front of people, but I'm happy to get up and, you know, pretend I'm the president of so-and-so and give a report about, you know, liaising with China. <laughs> cool. So you found you found an acting school. I guess you, you must have found mm. your your people there. Yeah. I, I'm, I'm particularly interested in, uh, like, you have uh, self-made mm. theatre. You know, acting, I feel so sorry for actors. It's, it's, it can be such a – you're just sort of waiting on other people to – I say yes or no to you, yeah. essentially. Right? Yeah. So a lot of actors turn the pen to the page and, and write something. But it sounds like writing was something there all along. Uh, tell us about uh, Butterfly Kicks. Yeah, I was always an artist who I'm not satisfied doing one role. <laughs> um, and I have stories to tell and it's like a total burning need. And Butterfly Kicks was like that real big burning need. I started writing it when I was at acting school at AC Arts. So after I left Flinders, I was like, I had the skills and the guts to stand up to my parents and say, I'm <laughs> going to pursue this. I'm done with this foolish international. Really? I've never, <laughs> I will never liaise with China. Um, yeah, I was sort of t- taken over by this image of a teenager at a New Year's Eve party, incredibly awkward like incapacitated by their awkwardness and falling totally madly in love with another girl across the dance floor and not knowing that they were queer previously. Yeah, I, I haven't seen the play, but uh, the first 10 pages are available. Yes. Right, we'll, we'll put a link in the podcasting. I, I read it last night and, um, yeah, it's the perfect description of yeah, especially teenage. Yeah. I felt oh, yeah. like the, I, could, I could see it. I could feel the tingle in the skin and that complete intoxication with a person on site. Um, is it, was it, how autobiographical is, is that? Or uh, I approached it as um, if I had known I was queer as a teenager, which I didn't, um, that was something I like pushed down and didn't address. If I had known I was queer in high school, what might it have looked like? Sure, sure. What would have been like the really beautiful, exciting things, but what would also have been like the really hard things? Mm. Um, And I actually ended up coming out to my parents when they came and saw Butterfly Kicks. Wow. Wow. Um, And like a big part of Butterfly Kicks is um, Miller, the self-discovering queer character is Mm. terrified of telling her mum, terrified of being publicly queer and the consequences of that. Um, And I really wanted to sort of put on stage a really clear example of beautiful, intoxicating, wholesome queer love. Mm -hmm. And all they want to do is hold hands and dance at formal together Mm -hmm. Um, and, you know, be on the swim team without getting bullied. Mm And do all these things that heterosexual people get to do. Yeah, just take for granted, right? Yeah. 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 Um, 
so there are really like strong moments in the play of like the first time they hold hands in public and like mm. giving that the actual weight and terror of it. Um, so it's not autobiographical. Um, her name is Miller, which is similar to mine. Um, <laughs> but it's more of like a imagined sort of alternate universe yeah, sure. and a very much more heightened version. Like I think I was a very awkward teenager, but nowhere near as much as she is. Sure, sure. Um, wow, that's such a, I mean, that coming out to your parents on stage, that's, that's, that's amazing. That's incredible. Yeah. I'm just, I didn't know that. that I'm really kind of super impressed by that. Um, part of, part of what I like to do in this podcast is talk to people who do work in fields that I don't. Yeah. Um, and maybe sort of educate any of the listeners out there about the processes. Behind mm. So let's talk about theater. I, 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 uh, work in film. Yeah. And they feel like they go hand in hand. You yeah. Get a bunch of people who put them in costumes. You tell a story and other people watch it. Um, but obviously very different uh, things. But also in, in, in practice, I don't show anybody a movie until it's done. Yeah. But let's rewind and talk to me about the process of making a piece of theatre. Um, mm. I've been to readings of your work, you know, where it's in development. And oh, cool. I didn't know you'd seen my stuff. Yeah, you and Ord. Uh, at, um, oh, at how to eat rabbit. Oh, my yeah, gosh. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Actually, uh, my, I came with my, my partner. Oh, beautiful. Um, yeah, and it, I loved it. And I just loved watching people on stage, just, just reading work. It was so, I mean, that's about as raw as you can get in terms of performing a piece. But knowing mm. that it was still in development. I sat there with a with a with a perfectionist filmmaker's anxiety of like, oh my god, it's not finished yet. Why are you showing people? Um, can you just talk us through the mm. process of that? I think it's really interesting. Yeah, um, I take a very long time when I make my work, um, which I think is good, and that usually means like currently, I'm touring shows that I've written, but I'm also sort of meditating and thinking and pondering a lot and researching plays that I'm yet to write that I know I'll probably write next year or the year after. Uh, and I'm also like writing currently um, and I'm writing film scripts for the first time this year rather than plays, uh, which is cool. So for like How to Eat Rabbit, I wrote that one quite quickly. That's I'm breaking my own usual process there mm. um, where the election happened in 2019 mm -hmm. the federal australian federal election and the libs got in and at that time in the world i'm very responsive to like what's going on in my life and what's going on in the broader world mm. and at that time greta thunberg and school strike for climate was kind of at its peak yeah, where it was yeah, um so present and there were rallies happening in australia and um people were marching in adelaide and it just felt that the future of our country was resting on that election of whether we would work towards a safer planet and take action on climate change mm -hmm. or the libs getting in kind of signaled to me that we're not going to make those changes. And as a disabled person, like I'm going to die in the climate catastrophe much faster than a non-disabled person. I need medication and if I can't access that medication, I'm going to be in debilitating pain where I can't function. Mm. I can't speak. I can't walk, let alone, you know, outrun a tsunami or <laughs> however bad it gets. Um, I need a wheelchair sometimes. And if that gets a puncture or if, 
you know, there are power chairs that need to be charged to operate. Um, I'm very reliant on other people to, you know, live. Um, and there are lots of cases, you know, where bushfires happen and there isn't an evacuation plan for disabled people. Mm. Um, and the shelters aren't accessible to everyone. So the safe place is not the safe place for all of us. Yeah. Um, and I just felt like I had to push aside everything else I was working on at that time and write a play about this because I was so angry and I was like genuinely scared for my own life and for the lives of people who have more severe disabilities than I do, people who rely on like um, oxygen tanks. And I was just full of all this rage and like, we are human beings, Um, we deserve life. And so I wrote How to Eat Rabbit in two weeks. That was all I did. Um, and then I submitted that to the State Theatre Company of South Australia's Young Playwrights Award and they gave it a merit award and, you know, said it was, you know, very good and good ideas. Um, and then I got the Mill residency. So I had two weeks in the space. So I... Just for people that don't know, yeah. what is the Mill? It's a really crucial part of Adelaide's art scene. It is. I'm so glad it exists. Um, And I remember when it first appeared and was like, oh, thank goodness. (laughs) It's a creative hub. So there are studios for artists with all different practices, Um, shoemakers, visual artists, tattooists, like there's so much in there. Um, And there's also like an exhibition space, but there's also a theatre, which they uh, let out to people and have shows on during the Fringe but they have these residency programs. So I got free use of the space for two weeks and we were just easing our way out of lockdown in Australia at that time. So that was a whole year later from submitting it to the award and having written the first draft that I came back to the script for the next time. It's getting kind of boring to talk about lockdown and COVID, but hey, we're living with it. That's really interesting that, you know, piece was inspired by something at a certain time. And then we kind of went into a, oh, a test, bit of a test run. Yeah. You know, of that how much did, you know, or make COVID inform the work? It was odd. Oh, by the way, yeah. for the listeners, I know, I know what the play is. Yes. Tell us, can you, you know, a yeah. synopsis of... <laughs> uh, two people, one Gen Z, one a millennial, uh, retreat underground into a kind of DIY bunker of sorts and are... Uh, training to prepare for the climate catastrophe, training to build all their skills to survive it. And one is becoming increasingly unwell and debilitated by some kind of illness or disability that we're not quite sure what is happening with this person. Um, Could they be pregnant? Could they be ill? Like, we're not sure what's happening and, um, and that character doesn't know what's happening. And it sort of becomes this really big, pressure cooker of survival for these two Mm. um and so i came back to the play over a year later um to do the residency where i worked with audrey mason hyde as an actor myself as an actor and as playwright and teddy dunn as dramaturg and teddy was uh zoomed into every rehearsal and development from melbourne and And that was part of the the residency yeah the mentorship I suppose the access to it um that was like I brought Teddy on um and pitched the project 
that way. Um, and I got a few grants to pay artist fees and sort of opened this play up and was like, oh, these characters are putting on masks when they leave the bunker. <laughs> oh, these characters are using hand sanitizer when they come back. And oh, there's, there's bushfires. I've written that there's bushfires nearby. And we had just had the horrific um, bushfires in Australia. Yeah. And I felt like I'd written this kind of like prediction <laughs> and these like two people in isolation in this bunker away from the rest of the world. And it's kind of described that everyone's kind of at home and not really going out and healthcare is really hard to access. Mm. Um, and then not wanting people to think that this is a play inspired by lockdown. <laughs> it's like, no, like disabled people get isolated in our homes all the time. And mm. I felt very prepared when lockdown happened. I was like, cool. I make work in my living room a lot. Mm -hmm. I'll just keep doing that. Mm. And now I get to watch all this amazing theatre that's being live streamed and performed online that I usually don't get to go to if I have a bad flair. Sure. Um, so we worked as a team on how to eat rabbit. A dramaturg is kind of like, I call them like a script doctor. Yeah, I was going to ask. Like right? a, a guide. Sure. Um, they sort of look at the play as a whole and they're aware of its context. Mm -hmm. um, is it referencing a specific era? Mm. Are there specific songs or texts that the play references that they need to know about? And like, why are the curtains blue? Mm. Those kind of questions. That's really cool. That's, it's, it's not, there's got to be some sort of equivalent in film. I mean, I'm deep in rewrites of a, of a script at the moment with a co-writer, but we often get lost in the woods and just the idea of having someone there that's like kind of just seeing the bigger picture, I guess, yeah. allows, perhaps allows you to run free within the, the, the guiding fence line that they're providing and yeah. you can sort of, yeah, put the logic aside and go play and they'll be like, eh, maybe over here, you know? Yeah. Oh, that's really interesting. Um, Cause I really like in my work, like I'm not writing a play to be written, to be read on a page in a room. Um, like cool, great, read my plays, but, Therefore, to live on the stage, to be up, to be spoken, to be moved. Mm. Um, so I like to work with actors while it's still pretty fresh. I guess when you're writing, uh, how much are you thinking about the reading experience versus this is a blueprint for something to be performed? And what's that process like? Yeah, I'm very much thinking of it as the blueprint that actors and a director will use to put on stage. Like that's what a play is. Um, I'm also going to, you know, make it look pretty on the page. And there, I like, I write very like funny or beautiful stage directions that the audience in the theater won't know, but someone reading it will know. Absolutely, yeah. Um, and that will also inform what that stage direction actually is. Yeah. So rather than just they exit, mm. like what can I give you yeah. Is there a verb or an adjective? They leave off stage or yeah. they moose. Or, yeah, it, yeah. It, it adds colour that, um, yeah, really will inform performance of tone. And, yeah, and like for butterfly kicks, when they had the handheld moment, I wrote like, you know, they hold hands, but then I added nothing bad happens. Huh. That's really great. Yeah. I, I felt that, you know. Yeah, I mean? it, yeah, oh, yeah, it just yeah. gives me tingles every time. <laughs> I was also performing Miller in Butterfly Kicks. Um, it gave me and Lisa, who played Annabelle, like so much context of what this moment is mm. and the tension that's behind it. Um, so we worked, like we would read the script, uh, How to Eat Rabbit at the Mill, and we'd have huge conversations about it and what the actual story is. And 
I would go away and do rewrites and drafts and uh, I wrote a new scene or two based out of conversations with the actor and the dramaturg and it was a very collaborative process and at the end we had like a showing where we read the script so then I could gauge audience feedback do you laugh at the right moments Um, is there anything that you're confused about and you don't understand that I need to make clearer that's like such a useful part of the process and now I'm still making tweaks to it I've done another draft since then and I'm hoping to get it on stage next year or the year after I'm pitching it to a few theatres next week so fingers crossed that you'll have a show to come see. (laughs) Um, And during rehearsal, I'll still be doing edits and tweaks. Um, Probably won't have to write a whole new scene or, you know, do a major cut. Mm. But hearing actors say lines, you realise, oh, that doesn't actually sound right. Or Mm. I can trust they'll do it in their performance. They don't need to say, I'm really angry with you. Mm. The way they say can you get the lettuce out of the fridge mm-hmm. will tell me that they're angry. Yeah. It's, I mean, they, you know, I write as well and I, and I know those things. I know that I don't need my character to, yeah, walk through it. I am bad at you for the thing that you did. It's, yeah. It's the way they open the door. Yeah. It tells you that. But um, that process is still, I mean, for me still, like it takes me 12 drafts to get to that simplicity yeah. Oh, the way she lights a cigarette, I can cut that whole monologue. You know, yeah. It, it doesn't need all that. That's really cool that you get to, yeah, run it and over and over in front of audiences and, yeah, where are they laughing? Where are they crying? How does that moment feel? Yeah. And I don't think when I started, I didn't realize how long things take. Mm-hmm. Like, I wrote, I f- wrote Butterfly Kicks, started 2017, finished it 2018, did a development of it. 2019 it was programmed to be on stage at rumpus in 2020 covid and then mm-hmm. we got it on stage may 2021 yeah. this brings me to something i like to ask everybody i mean look, artists you know we, we get impatient mm. we want to do the thing show the thing but yeah it's, it takes time it takes patience and that could be a struggle why do you when make art when it's <laughs> so hard and it's poorly paid and it's stressful and the government hates you? <laughs> there you go. Yeah, exactly what I was going to ask. I think it's the audiences for me. Mm-hmm. Um, I make work for audiences to see and often very specific audiences. Like everyone's welcome. Mm. Um, but like Butterfly Kicks was very much for young queer people. Sure. Um, How to Eat Rabbit was for these young climate strikers to say, I hear you, I see you, but also for my disabled community and go, our stories are never told. And they are always, if they are told, told by non-disabled people who have no idea what they're doing um, and often do very hurtful portrayals and go, here's a story for us. (laughs) Um, And it just brings me so much joy to share work with audiences and hear their feedback and how they experience the show and to have an impact on people to um, someone saw a show I made about getting diagnosed with endometriosis and all the medical trauma I had to go through to get that diagnosis. And she was like, I'm going to go home and write a play about my experience. 
Awesome. I'm like, cool, amazing. Yeah. Um, or people bringing their parents to see butterfly kicks and telling me that their mum now understands them a bit more. Um, it, yeah, I did a play with Sydney Theatre Company, just, you know, just, just drop that one in there, um, <laughs> about um, autistic people and disabled people. And I had my phone blowing up with autistic friends who have never seen themselves on stage and never seen an autistic actor playing an autistic person and a disabled person playing a disabled character. Mm. And what that just means to people. Mm. Mm. Like, I don't... And I, and I imagine not in a way that's, um, like you said, a negative representation or a condescending representation or... yeah. Yeah. Whatever infinite amount of, you know, just wrong-headed ways yes. it's portrayed. Yeah. Nuanced and beautiful and complex yeah. and interesting. Because, mm-hmm. um, like, Butterfly Kicks was an, one of the best experiences of my life. I was so happy every day. But I was also incredibly stressed because I was working as the playwright, the actor, the producer, which was a huge responsibility. Mm-hmm. Um the access coordinator <laughs> determined to deliver a huge amount of access um, and, you know, marketing. And it was so stressful. I was working 14 hour days and I'm disabled. I'm sometimes I can't work a six hour day. Um, so it was exhausting and I was so stressed and I was like, is this even worth it? I'm so tired and I'm not going to get, I'm going to get paid, but, you know, not as much as this work is actually worth. Yeah. Every now and then when I'm working on things like that, I'll sit down and I'll calculate my hourly rate. Oh. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. 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 Um, but then once we opened and I had the audience mm. and I got to just be an actor on a stage telling a story, that's... The, like that's the best thing I if I could act every day if I could write every day which I, this year I have had that privilege to do um, I think I've done something like eight or nine shows this year um, like that's just the best feeling in the world it's makes me so happy and it made it all worth it and like I live with chronic pain. I'm in really high levels of pain every second of every day. And I'm either coping and that's when you see me out in public or I'm not coping and that's when you don't see me and I'm at home screaming into a pillow and um, having an awful time. But when I perform screen and stage, my pain goes away. And like no doctor can give me that. <laughs> they try, they cannot. <laughs> Um, like I'm on very high levels of pain meds um, and it's like, you know, I could take a Tic Tac and I'd have the same difference. (laughs) Um, So like when COVID happened and I lost nine months of work overnight, Mm -hmm. my first thought was, oh, fuck, I'm going to be in really high levels of pain for however long and I don't have the next project to look forward to and go, well, at least I'll have, you know, 90 minutes for two weeks when I do that show, mm-hmm. that'll be pain-free. Mm-hmm. Um, so that's why I keep coming back. That's a 
good reasons. That that whole, um, I mean, I can't. It's it's no comparison whatsoever. But working in film, I find that no matter how tired, I am, suddenly when I'm on set, it's infinite energy. It's like it doesn't make physical sense. I'm like, I can keep just. I guess it's just you know that you're doing that thing that you're supposed to do. Yeah, and it it's magic. You know, it's it's superpowers. Almost. Yes. I can do things on stage that I can't do in my real life. Mm. And my body will catch up with me afterwards. Oh, and oh <laughs> hugely. Um, we kept my wheelchair in the dressing room um, during Butterfly Kicks and I would try and make myself use it after every show. You know, you want to go out there and, you know, be standing and talk sure. to people. Um, but... And, like, it was more to avoid the ableism that you face as a wheelchair user. Um, people don't look at you or people stare or people will just come up to you and before they say hello will say, can you have sex? Can you walk? I saw your leg move. So... I mean, I'm speechless when I hear stuff like that. I mean, yeah, I mean, I... If you see me in public and I'm not in a wheelchair, that's why I'm not in a wheelchair. Like... Um, yeah, my body needs to be in a wheelchair most days now, which is fine. I don't, I don't care about it. That's fine. It's everyone else's reaction to me being in a wheelchair. That's the problem. Bring, I mean, I just want to acknowledge just, just how trash that is. <laughs> I, you know, I, yeah, it's just, I mean, I, I believe every word, but I cannot still help but be agog yeah. when I hear that people talk to strangers like that it's it's mind-bending um which i think is why we need media representation of ambulatory wheelchair users in particular where you can stand you can get out of your chair you can cross your legs in public (laughs) because i think people just haven't seen it on neighbors or pack to the rafters Mm -hmm. um or a marvel movie Mm -hmm. um so they don't know this is a possibility and the only time they see a wheelchair user is like someone who's paralyzed and yeah, can't move sure even if you don't know you should just mind your own damn business man yeah just don't ask people stuff just <laughs> tune into my other podcast Aaron's rant <laughs> um, <laughs> but uh, that, old man shouts oh, the cloud <laughs> that's me man oh that is me um but that uh, you bring me back to, you, mm. that's beautiful it ties me into something I want to sort of rewind to yeah um about so that that's and you know I'm a big scary looking white man I can go anywhere do whatever I want no yeah. one ever bothers me no one ever talks to me everyone gets out of my way yeah and so I'm trying especially these days everywhere I go to just I guess be aware of what my presence can represent mm. it can be intimidating yeah no one realizes I'm just this goofy dude inside you know I know what I look like yeah do you know what I mean um and always sometimes my presence isn't welcome in a space. And, and just be aware of that and back out the group quite, yeah. you know what I mean? Yeah. Um, but also, like, I, I'm just trying to really be conscious of what other people's experiences would be like in any situation that yeah. I'm in. You know, uh, still, uh, you know, uh, my, my, my partner, Ashley, was really stressed out one evening I said, why don't you put some headphones on and go for a run? <gasps> said, what is wrong? I was like, oh, yeah, you can't do that. 
Yeah. That's what I do to relieve my stress. I'll just go sit in a park in the nighttime. It's a headphones. I have to worry, right? Um, I'm rambling, but um, that, you know, you're literally putting your own health and comfort aside to avoid because you're so aware yeah. of how other people are. So everywhere you go, it seems like you have to be aware of other people. Yeah. Um, but also you talk about um, disabled people relying on other people. To, yeah. Like needing community for survival. Yeah. Um, and I feel like so much of question, you know, the, the debate around vaccines and pandemic. Yeah. Or, you know, you talk about this, you know, climate change and stuff. A lot of people are thinking of it perhaps in an individual level. Like, yeah. I'll be all right. You know what I mean? I, I, I'll be okay with this. But I guess what am I, I'm trying to get at that. Um, it can't be survival of the fittest. Like we need each other yeah. to survive. And we, we all do. Yes. It's an illusion. Yes. It's a Independence is a myth. Yeah. Like we've just built a world where certain people have their needs met and certain people don't. Mm-hmm. Like, could you fix your own car if, it, if a tire fell off and your engine exploded? Oh, no. Yeah, put the chain back on my bike. <laughs> <laughs> and so we have normalized that there are people who are qualified and you take your car to and they help you mm-hmm. and you give them money in exchange. Yeah. Um, I need my mum to come over and help me change my sheets because I cannot change a double bed sheets by myself. Um, and, you know, currently I'm single. Um, and usually, like, my ex-partner would fulfil so many of my needs, but then becoming single, you're like, oh, crap. Mm. I don't have someone to carry me to the bathroom if I can't walk or to bring me food when I can't cook. Mm. Um, so disabled people have to form these communities mm. and rely on people for things that able-bodied people don't. Mm. But we're going to need each other. Yeah. We all already, like you said, we all already do. Right? Yeah. Someone makes your food in a restaurant, that's fine. We're not going to, like, think you're less of a human because you didn't cook your own food. I mean, I don't know how to grow my own food. I'm trying to... That's to, a to, skill. Forget is. the guns. Forget all that. <laughs> yeah. Learn how to make your own food. Can you grow a potato, Aaron? No. You're going to die. <laughs> you know. Yeah. I, I, I joke around about it. It's a, it's a fun conversation I like to have. It's like, who would you pick out of your friends to survive the apocalypse? And I was talking to my brother, who's a carpenter and does all these, you know, real self-sufficient dude. And I was like, well, you're on my team. He's like, you're not on mine. I was like, what? He's like, what are you going to do? Make a movie about it? Yes. Yeah. Someone needs to tell our tales, Jesse. But that's the thing. Like, people won't pick me for their team because I am physically weak. Mm. Like, my body can't run and lift heavy things and, you know, scale a building if we had to. Why would you want me on your team? Like, it felt very um, like watching Squid Game, Mm. Um, particularly when they pick teams for tug of war. I was like, I would die. Right. I would die so quick. Yeah. And before I became disabled, I was a strong, active, fit, healthy human. I'm intellectually smart. I think I'm a nice friend. <laughs> I'm a good artist. Um, yeah. And seeing my value decrease um, to other people and seeing people who were 
friends or colleagues completely change how they interact with me just because I sit down. Like, mm. we're currently doing this interview on wheelie chairs. Like, how is a wheelie office chair any different to my wheelchair? In many ways. But for my metaphor right now, they are the same. <laughs> yeah, I mean, look, I, you know, um, we could dive into this for, for, for a whole other hour. Um, I guess something that I want to say as a able-bodied guy is that the more, you know, you say, like, you know, uh, by writing stories for you know, queer kids, it's, you know, they can see themselves and mm. for disabled people. And, but, like, there's so much benefit to those stories being told for everyone. 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 Because it's the cornerstone of story is that it's they're all about all of us. Yes. All of them. Yes. The more specific you get with this, you know, the more specific you are, the more universal the appeal. It is, yeah. And so the more that we can all engage with, with varied voices, yeah. varied representations, it just makes everything better. Yeah, and like marginalised people are very familiar with that. We've spent our lives, you know, figuring out how do I empathise with Tom Cruise and Mission Impossible. <laughs> like, So now it's like, it's your turn. Mm. You have to be figuring out how, and I have to do it as well. Like, how do I uh, see myself or relate or enjoy or engage with a story about uh, old Asian men? Sure. Um, or someone who's got a completely different life experience to me. Yeah. Nelia, who was yeah. the first guest, she asked me that question. Yeah, we're talking about this too. Um, you know, she asked me if I see myself in movies and, you know, my brain sort of failed me at the time. I didn't have a good answer for it, but I was like, but I'm going to think about that. Yeah. And I have been. And, you know, white cis man, I grew up and I had James Bond. I had Indiana Jones. I had Batman essentially look like me. Do you know what I mean? Yeah. Very easy for me to like paste myself onto that. And yeah. And live that adventure in that movie. Um, but it really got me thinking about, you know, what the movies that I do love, that I do return to the characters that I just think about all the time. Mm. It's like, well, what am I seeing in that? You know, that's a reflection on, or that, you know, that I recognize. Yeah. I recognize in those, in those things. And uh, still don't have a great answer for that, but it's really interesting to, to ponder. And it's not just a bunch of white guys. It's like, oh, that, that character and that character. Yeah. And, that character. and what effect does that have on you being told, this is who you see yourself in and they're the protagonist mm. and they're strong and they're like desirable. Or they're the villain sometimes, you know? Yeah. Like yeah. most of the time, if there's a disabled person, they're the villain, like James Bond, oh, every yeah. Bond villain. Don't even get me started now. I, I walking past the poster. Of Rem- oh. like, what? It's tw- like, can we get past the facial injury? Yeah. Bad guy thing. Yeah. What, what, And it makes me so angry for every young aspiring actor who has a facial difference who will be told all through acting school, you're not going to get work Uh because you look different to have agents go, no, I'm not going to take you on because you look different. Mm. And then Rami Malek, who's having a wonderful career and is a wonderful actor, Mm. gets some prosthetics put on his face. Mm. It's like you're stealing the one job, the one role that they could play (laughs) (laughs) where you've got the whole range of everything else. Yeah. I I was just so aware of just watching the trailer that it's like handsomest man in the world, Daniel Craig. Yeah. Fighting 
disabled villain just oh my god just yeah. The visual of that is just, it's just not on, you know? Yeah, and I really feel a responsibility. Like I'm creating workplaces when I create work. I'm yeah. saying who can be in the room. And if I write that this is a play with seven white men, mm. I'm creating jobs for seven white men. Mm. I'm not interested in that. That's interesting. Yeah, let's, let's bring this back to your work. That feels like that's a part of the intent of yeah. creating it from the ground up. Yeah, um, so for, like, How to Eat Rabbit, even though the characters never discuss, like, gender or queerness in, like, explicit depth, Mm. it's written in the casting notes that these are two non-binary or trans people. Mm. And it can be played by two cis women, Mm. but that has to be your last resort. Sure. And uh, under no circumstances can either of these roles be played by cis men. Mm. Trans men, sure. Mm. Um but the point is that the I am stating you must hire someone of a marginalised gender mm-hmm. for these roles, even though it's not relevant to the plot. Sure. Um, because I'm creating jobs and I'm cre- uh, that's people who are going to get paid. Mm-hmm. And I state in that one as well that the disabled character must be played by a disabled or chronically ill actor. Not someone who's related to someone who's disabled, not someone who's able-bodied, because these are people who don't often get jobs. And I strongly believe that we deserve to tell our own stories and to get the profits from telling those stories. It's money. It's contributing to marginalisation. It's not about anyone can play anyone. Maybe in a hundred years we'll be there. Yeah. But until it doesn't go the other way, you're not casting disabled actors as James Bond, as Harry Potter, yeah. although he does have glasses. So that is a disability. Um, but my point is I'll use a different character. Um, if you're not casting a wheelchair user or someone with a cane or a facial difference as Indiana Jones, then he doesn't get to play the disabled character. That's not how it's working. Yeah. Yeah, the money thing. I mean, mm. at the end of the day, it's the arts industry. You know, this is about paying rent and jobs. Yeah. Yeah, I pay my rent with, like, the other day I got a bunch of royalties from people buying butterfly kicks and people put it on in WA. So I got, like, money from that. And I was like, cool, that's my rent for this yeah. week. <laughs> like, um, so whenever I can, it's seeking out. Um, people of colour, Indigenous artists, like white men are the last people I'm going to collaborate with. Mm. Um, although I love your films, so I would be open to collaborating with you. Um, <laughs> but when I'm in charge of putting together a team, yeah. those are the last people I'm going to be thinking about because they're going fine. Yeah, we're doing fine. Like, yeah. <laughs> even if you have to go get a job at Woolies because Jamila didn't cast you in something... <laughs> Like, you're still doing fine. <laughs> um, it's all about the obstacles they're not encountering. Mm, mm. Yeah, I get sick of the argument that, you know, that your approach is exclusionary when it's clearly not. It's actually opening up inclusion for people that are, ex- you know, yeah. have been excluded since the dawn of time. Yeah. Yeah, we're like, we've got a lot of catching up to do. Mm-hmm. There's mm-hmm. so many firsts ahead of us and I want to do those so that they're not firsts anymore. Yeah. Yeah. Well, we were talking right before we rolled a 
about um, yeah, just how many times you hear it. It's the first Asian woman to blah, and like, how is that the first? There's there's so many of those things that are still yeah. the first time it's happening. Just yesterday, uh, uh, Adelaide United. Yes, the first, the first, the first openly gay. I couldn't believe it. Yeah. Wild. Yeah. Hell yeah, dude. And Good like for you. all these grant applications and companies wanting innovative original work. Cool. Come to me. I've got innovative original work. Anyone out there is listening? <laughs> I have numerous players available for licensing and production. Like, what do you need? Do you want something about disability? Do you want something about queerness? Do I you want one axe? I got two axes. <laughs> I do though. I've got a. Oh, I've got one person shows. I've got oh, so many things. Um, but like you, if you want originality and innovation. Go hire people that don't t- get to tell their stories. Because mm. even if it's just uh, not about their lived experience, they're still groundbreaking. What do you find? And we'll kind of like, mm. we'll move this to, we'll tail this out soon. Yeah. But um, are yeah. there outside of, you know, the physical and the broadest of stuff, are there attitudes or, you know, things like that that are still barriers to getting in those rooms yeah the the people in charge hugely um and i was told don't let anyone know you're queer don't let anyone know you're non-binary or that you're disabled or ill because then they won't want to work with you because otherwise i'm like a thin white uh femme human who's more trustworthy who is like more bankable more same, same, same as them. So they can tr- trust and they go, oh, you do good art. Or like we know what we're dealing with. Yeah. I think it's because it's unknown, it's mm. scary. Yeah. Um, I think people want, it's like a big old tribal instinct of like stay with the safe people who look like me. Yeah. Yeah. We know what we're dealing with. We know what to expect. My instincts are, are telling me that, Oh, like if we bring someone in new, they might, yeah, they'll try to change things. Oh, they might hold us accountable. Yeah. You know what I mean? The same old lazy decisions we keep making aren't going to stand up. We'll have oh, to do a lot of work. work. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. Oh, they're going to make you work. I reckon that's 90% of it. Eh? Yeah. Mm. People being complacent and comfortable mm. and not wanting to give up power or perceived power. Yeah, for sure. And. For sure. Also not wanting to confront their own transphobia, ableism, racism, sexism. Like, mm. they don't want to be the bad guy. Yeah, man. I mean, it's, 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 it, it is work. If, and it is, it can be really confronting. You know what I mean? With, you know, thoughts will pop into my head. I just go, where the hell did that come from? Yeah. It's been here the whole time. Let's figure that out. You know, it doesn't feel good. No. And like... I'm ableist. I grew up in a world that made ableism the norm mm-hmm. and I have to undo that mm-hmm. within mm-hmm. myself mm-hmm. and just be prepared to do the work. Yeah. Yeah. Don't make me do the work. <laughs> <laughs> Let's wrap this up with mm. final question. What's next? What does the future hold for you? Ah, oh, it's so exciting at the moment. You've timed this interview very well. Love it. Um, I am going to be stepping into a really exciting role um i'm going to be leading a project that will be researching developing and advocating 
for a report that tells us how we can improve disabled inclusion in Australian film. So I'm working with Back to Back Theatre on that. Um, They made their first feature film last year that I was in, um, which was a 100% disabled cast. And every head of department behind the scenes had a disabled intern. Cool. So they were getting upskilled. So they, and I've seen it, they are getting gigs now because they have that experience. That's fantastic. Um, So it was wonderful. And because I did that feature with them and they've followed my career since then, they were like, oh, you're the perfect person to lead this project. So I get to like talk to all the big production companies and the big producers and research and interview them was like, what's your obstacles? Why aren't you including us? Um, and be really honest and frank about it so then I can come up with a plan. And I've got some really good ideas of how inclusion can improve, Mm. but I get um, six months to research it and hear from other people and other artists that do work with disabled artists Mm. and and the disabled artists themselves um, and then have this, you know, beautiful, shiny report that, people can actively implement. That's so exciting. I mean, I love, especially like the film industry and it's just, you know, so many departments and yeah, uh, that's, that's really cool. I mean, like I love, I love making movies more than anything. And the idea that, you know, that there's someone out there that loves it as much as me, but there's something that could be changed that is stopping them being included in that. And it's tragic. So, you know, yeah I'm really excited and it's um really flexible which is great um so that if I do have a flare-up and can't work for a week fine I'll just work twice next week um and it means I can also keep doing projects um so my show Benched is a one-person show that I've done three times this year already um three different seasons and I'll be doing it twice more at least next year I'm touring it to Sydney and Melbourne Mm -hmm which is yet to be officially announced um, with who is presenting those, but it's very exciting who is presenting those. Um, And, you know, continuing to pitch Benched to, like, other states and other places in SA as well um, so that it'll have more of a life. And I'll keep writing. I'm writing horror films with disabled leads. Horror is the perfect genre to explore disability. Um... I always say that I feel like a final girl fighting to survive to the end of the movie. Mm -hmm. Um, And like Run on Netflix has a wheelchair user as the lead and just like the added tension Uh, of someone whose body is an obstacle as well as like the ablest and accessible world being a huge obstacle. Mm -hmm. Like when you can't just like run away from the, yeah, yeah, you literally can't run up the stairs Um, or down them. Yeah. Just so busy. I love to see someone with a lot on their plate. So much. I'm also doing disability access consultancy on the next show at Rumpus, which is Hamlet in the Other Room by Good Company Theatre, which I love to do. And I'm working with Andy Snelling, uh, doing access consultancy on accidental radical development. And I'm sure I'm going to keep picking up dramaturgy gigs and probably more access consultancy and, you know, writing for articles and things. Getting some sleep in there somewhere, I imagine. Yeah, I am actively trying to have weekends. Yeah, um, yeah you've got to enforce that, right? Yeah. I'm trying, to do the, I'm trying to do the same thing myself. It's really hard when you're freelance and you're juggling so many gigs. Yeah. 
and you might have a more lean month where you're not making so much. Um, yeah, yeah, it's really hard to say no to things, mm-hmm, mm-hmm. Um, even if I know it will overload me. But I'm really trying to actively, you know, push back against capitalism as well in my own practice and take my breaks and go and to the... And not feel guilty about it. And Yeah, um, which is a huge thing, like, when I became disabled is, like, you can clearly tell I'm a workaholic. Like, I love my work. Um I wouldn't be this way if it was, you know, working at Subway. Um, but it's when your body forces you to stop, you have to become comfortable with resting. And some days I can't even do like good resting. I'll be so sick. I can't watch TV. Sure. And I try and when I have to take rest to maintain a healthy body as much as I can, I'll be like, cool, I'm going to watch six episodes of this show today and I feel like I've achieved something (laughs) (laughs) a little hack for my brain that's good that's good but I am trying to like go rollerblading Mm -hmm. which I know will cause a flare and I won't better walk afterwards but I want 30 minutes of rollerblading um and like you know see my friends and spend time resting so listeners out there I hope you've had a restful time listening to us. Yeah. Um, Lie down, listen to this. Make sure you pee on your paid time, not on your break. That's right. Exactly. (laughs) Make good art. Always make good art. Buy my plays. (laughs) 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 Come see my stuff. (laughs) Pay me. Hire me. Well, it's been a pleasure talking to artist slash salesperson. Thanks so much. That was awesome. Thank you so much. That was a great conversation. Thanks again to Jamila for being a great guest and for being far more articulate than I. For up-to-date information on everything that's happening at Nexus Arts, please visit www.nexusarts.org.au. Thanks to Arts South Australia's Recovery Fund, we are once again presenting our visual arts exhibitions online in 2021. Head to nexusartsgallery.com to experience the work of all our amazing artists. We're also thrilled to be partnering with Spark Brewery and Rose Kentish Wines this year. Come in and taste their wares at Nexus Arts venue and be sure to seek out these amazing local socially responsible labels wherever you choose to have a drink. Talk to you next time.